all, welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 44, all about being an extraordinary coach. Today I'm going to be talking with Alan Watkins, and I first came across his work a few years back. His book Coherence I found fascinating, talking about heart rate variability, amongst other things, and, and how that impacts our performance and well-being. What I like about Alan is he really has a broad kind of background of experience. He's actually a neuroscientist. He is an executive coach, a leadership coach, who, and he works with some super high up CEOs with huge global organizations. And his company really applies the latest thinking in neuroscience to improve performance. So they do cool things like monitoring the leaders they work with. You'll hear a really cool story about the kinds of things they can then determine uh, from that data. So I wanted to talk to him about that. We'll also talk about his work with the Great Britain rowing team. He was an advisor to the team in 2012 and 16. And I think he says seven teams he advised and six of those meddled. So he'll talk about what did he do with them? How did he leverage neuroplasticity to improve their performance? We get very specific about that, including also the role of emotions in performance. So Alan is also a faculty member on our Neuroscience of Change program. He's going to be doing a bonus session. And I cannot wait. I'm bursting to tell you about the, the lineup we have because it's, I'm so proud about the work Lawrence has done, pulling in amazing people. We'll be launching that in September. If you want to stay in the loop about that and find out when Early Bird opens, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience. Sign up there and you'll stay in the loop. As usual, I would love it if you would share this podcast. It means so much to me if you would just take that time to do it because uh, it really does spread the word. People really do share these podcasts and I really appreciate that. So with that all said, let's dive in. So Alan, great to see you and great to hear you today. How's things with you? Excellent, Joel. Thank you. I am really excited about our call today. We actually spoke quite a, a few years back when you brought out your book, Coherence, which I loved. So hopefully we'll touch into some of the ideas in that. But um, I know there's a lot of things that you can talk about. So we'll, we'll kind of, we'll touch on some big ideas today. And then we'll also drill down and get very specific and practical for people. Um, but what I wanted to do first was ask you about the work that you are doing in the world, actually, you know, could you just give us a sense of what you are up to in your, your work? Yeah. Yes. We're very mission driven in the sense that we believe, um, the clock is ticking. Humanity's probably got, um, 30 years to make the right decision else. We won't see the next 300 years. So with that in mind, we're very focused on trying to uh, wake up and grow up um, the leaders that can really move the dial in the next 30 years. And uh, we have the sort of view that um, uh, religious leadership ha uh, has uh, stopped having the impact in the world that it used to. Um, and there's pretty profound evidence that political leadership um, is uh, currently... Um, how can I say this, distressed globally. Um, and so really corporate leadership or business leadership uh, is the sort of hope for the future. So if we can't rely on our religious leaders anymore in the way that we're used to in society uh, or the political leaders, it's down to business. It's down to business to make the right decisions in the next 30 years. 
So we're very focused on that and we have the great privilege of working with a uh, hundred different multinationals in multiple markets and multiple geographies. So uh, the CEOs and the C-suite players in uh, all around the globe. So it gives you a very unique perspective on what's going on and what the issues are that the coaching industry really needs to lean into. Uh, so I'm hugely passionate about the quality and the effectiveness of the coaching industry um, to help the, the global leaders, and by that I mean predominantly business leaders, to wake up and grow up, uh, become wiser, make better decisions, because humanity's very survival, in my view, depends on it. So there's so many different directions I could go in on what you just shared. Um, one thing I want to ask you is, you know, you said, oh, uh, religious and political leadership's failing us. Um, you know, you said you're working with like a hundred different organizations. Do you have hope about some, cause some people might say, I don't see how, how's, how's the business leadership out there serving us? Where are they showing up? So, you know, are, are they, and, and do you, where do you see people doing that if they are? Um, well, I, I think if we sort of, uh, take the view that, um, uh, capitalism, there's a lot of noise at the moment uh, about capitalism being in crisis. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of uh, people writing, uh, you know, suggesting that it, capitalism itself is past its sell-by date. And, and rather ironically, uh, and we can talk about this, is probably for the same reasons that political leadership has imploded. Um, uh, so there, it started with things like um, triple bottom line, you know, the whole notion of it's not just about profit. Um, uh, you know, we need to look at the people and the planet as well as the profit. Um, and there's a big rash of books, you know, um, about caring capitalism, full spectrum economics, caring economics, uh, when the money runs out. There's, there's tons of these books uh, and if anybody reads the Financial Times, it's been a, a big topic in the Financial Times over the last 12 months. Lots and lots of articles about we've got to move away from cash uh, to become more purpose-driven organizations. Now, many organizations are doing that simply because they can't attract any of the millennials into the workforce unless they have a purpose. But many are still purpose-washing, you know, kind of it's tick-boxing and they don't really mean it. Um, so I think... Um, my view would be that business leadership is still in the game um, and uh, there's still uh, hope and possibility. In fact, I was with a, an organization yesterday with their C-suite uh, and extremely encouraging that they spontaneously have decided uh, without us telling them uh, that they actually want to deflect or share some of their profits for good works in society. Um, so we've been advocating this to corporations we've worked with for the last 20 years. Look, guys, wake up. It's not just about quarterly returns. Business leaders have got a bigger responsibility to society. And so there are little one or two companies or a few companies starting to themselves realize this. So I think uh, we're right in the crucible. We're on a sort of knife edge cusp in business leadership. It may go either way. Uh, so I'm still optimistic that we have a chance um, I'm less optimistic about political leadership and religious leadership. I think both are much more in the um, failure camp than in the uh, potential success camp. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I'm 
feel fired up hearing you speak because I also believe that coaches can play a, a key role in, in helping us navigate these times. I was speaking to Margaret Wheatley yesterday. She's not hopeful. You know, she says that we're on a, <clears throat> like a kind of downward slope of um, a cyclical kind of um, end, you know, the ending times, you know, and that, that, that something can be birthed through that, but, you know, not that we're going to, um, you know, something uh, like, more integral or more holistic will take over the systems we're in now these systems need to, to disintegrate but I, I I do feel hope too I feel like coaches can play a key role and so I want to talk to you more about that but yeah give me a sense first what do you think about these times are calling for you know when there is so much polarization so much fear maybe regression in some ways what do you yeah. think needed in these times uh well first, the first thing is understanding um we have to understand the nature of these times to even understand what is this emergency that we're in. So if we're going to emerge something out of this emergency, we have to understand what's going on. And uh, as you probably know, Ken Wilber wrote a brilliant book, uh, Trump and the Post-Truth World, uh, where he just beautifully articulates uh, why we're in the current mess. Um, so that's definitely worth a read because it gives a, and it's, a, it's unlike many of Ken's books, which run to eight, 850 pages. This is only a hundred, hundred or so pages. So it's basically almost a note. Yeah. <laughs> Ken. Um, and, and it just beautifully describes why the regressions happened. Uh, and it's a, it's a failure of the sort of leading edge of leadership. Um, and in that failure, there's the possibility, um, you know, for, Kind of resurrection, if you will. Um, but so I'm still optimistic. I'm seeing in these hundred companies that we work with little pockets and little examples. Uh, so to, to to counterpoint uh, Margaret's sort of slightly more pessimistic view, um, the CEO of BlackRock, the leading property owner in America and one of the big uh, biggest sort of um, portfolio hedge fund type companies in the world, they own Hilton Hotels, for example, CloudReach, a tech startup. And many other companies. Uh, so the CEO of BlackRock himself has, for the second year in a row, basically sort of sent a note to all business leaders saying, if you don't have some kind of sense of social mission, you won't get our six trillion investment. So when somebody as hard-nosed capitalist like that says something like that, then you know that there's something going on. Or another example to share with Margaret would be uh, uh, Mark Weinberger, the uh, exiting um, uh, CEO of um, Ernst & Young, uh, the accountancy firm, uh, came out recently and said uh, within uh, one or two years, he thinks purpose auditing will be as important as financial auditing. Mm -hmm. So when hard-nosed capitalists like that actually start to say things like that, uh, and the Financial Times starts to write more and more articles uh, and even the New York Times is starting to get on, on, the, on, you know, wake up to this. My sense is there's something going on. Um, so I am optimistic. Uh, I mean, I think it still hangs in the balance. But, uh, and I think the coaching industry in particular has a crucial role to play here. Uh, but it requires the coaching industry themselves to wake up and coach in a different way. Well, yeah, how is that way? Like you also said before, like the issues... Uh, there's issues the business world is facing that the coaching industry really needs to lean into and know about. And so, yeah, tell me more about what you just said. Well, so I think um, uh, you can't coach somebody beyond 
the, the level of your own development. So I think the coaching industry themselves need to look very closely at their own development level. Um, and um, uh, we've got to start moving away. Uh, one of the sort of bellwethers of are we moving in the right direction is when we start to let go of our obsession with uh, descriptive diagnostics. Um, so that? Just, uh, well, there are two, there are basically two diagnostic methodologies to um, suss out, you know, where are leaders? Uh, you've got descriptive diagnostic and developmental diagnostics. So descriptive diagnostics are things like typologies. It, the, the, it describes you and the most widely used typology as most people will know are Myers-Briggs. So as fascinating as that is, um, and we can debate about how legitimately researched it is, but uh, they're interesting. Their typologies are very interesting, but they describe you. You know, you're an INTJ, you're an ENFP, uh, or, or, you know, you might use the Enneagram or the Belvin team profiles. They're all typologies. They're very interesting. Um, that's a description of you. It, it's not, you know, it doesn't say much about, you know, uh, your capability level. It describes you. Or if you haven't got sort of snagged in, in typology, you might have um, been using uh, a strength finder, you know, like the Gallup strength finder. And again, fascinating, you know, Joel, you have these six strengths uh, and that's what you need for this type of leadership. Uh, it's, it's all very interesting, um, but there isn't one set of strengths that always predicts success in business. Um, I mean, in fact, if you lit, read the entire leadership literature, which unfortunately I have, read most of it, um, then uh, one of the things that comes out loud and clear is there isn't one set of strengths that predicts success. Leaders succeed through a whole variety of strengths. There isn't a cookie cutter. Um, so, but we do get obsessed with looking at our strengths um, and because it describes us, you know, and we're fascinated by that. Or probably the most uh, robustly researched is personality testing, you know, testing you against the big five personality dimensions you know, your agreeableness, your introversion, and so on. Now, these are all wonderfully interesting instruments, but they can't predict the future. Uh, and the coaching industry and corporates themselves have been obsessed with description for the last 50 years, uh, even despite the fact that it hasn't really delivered on its promise. So um, I, I think the tide has already begun to turn, but not turned entirely into a realization that We've got to move away from description and move into developmental assessment. Um, you know, what level of sophistication are you as a coach or you as a leader? Uh, because that's the big game changer. So if I give you a very quick sort of sense of this, um, if you take as a, a metaphor for development age, uh, and, and, and it's, it's not really, but it's a, it's, it works in terms of being able to explain. So uh, the difference between a six-year-old and a 12-year-old. Uh, now, clearly, a 12-year-old is more sophisticated than a six-year-old. Their mind is more sophisticated. Um, now, I can do a typology test on all six-year-olds. Um, you're an INTJ six-year-old or you're an ENFP six-year-old. But the reason you're not succeeding is nothing to do with that. The reason you're not succeeding is you are six. You're only six years old. You know, you're not sophisticated enough. And we need a 12-year-old for this job. Um, and it doesn't really matter whether you're an agreeable six-year-old or a disagreeable six-year-old. The problem is you're six. It doesn't matter whether you've got this set of strengths or that set of strengths. The problem is you're six. So that's a, a kind of a way of illustrating 
that it's these things are really we've got to get into developmental assessment as a coaching industry and corporates have got to stop burning cash on description and get into development because it's our only real chance uh, for solving the wicked problems that we now face. Mm. Yeah, and so when you said coaches coach in a different way, do you do you mean as well that they coach developmentally? Correct. Than, yeah. Correct. So how do you uh, how do you help a six year old wake up to their six year oldness, and how do you help them develop to a twelve year old? And how do you help the 12-year-old become an 18-year-old? And how do you help the 18-year-old become a 24-year-old? And so on. How do you unlock these new levels? Now, of course, if you as the coach are yourself only 18, you can't coach somebody to a 24-year-old because that's beyond your own level of sophistication. So that's why the coaching industry have themselves got to vertically develop in order to help the leaders in the businesses around the world themselves develop. Hmm. You can't develop somebody beyond your own level of sophistication. It's not possible. Hmm. So there's a task for the coaching industry to really start tuning into uh, developmental theory and start to understand how is it that we've had, um, you know, we're having these leadership crises in the world. They're largely developmental crises, not... Uh, other types of crises. So once we understand that, then it makes, uh, you know, it's pretty clear as Ken's described in his book, this is a developmental crisis we're facing, nothing else. And if we understand that, then we have a chance for uh, hacking our way out of the problem. Yeah. What I think will please a lot of our listeners is that, that I, th- I think, you know, maybe, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I, I a, a good percentage of our listeners will, might be, you know, will be familiar with developmental theory in some way. We've had, you know, some good, great thinkers in this area, like Robert Keegan, Suzanne Cook-Reuter in the podcast. Um, and, you know, I, I think another note is like, I love you where you talk about ages and yet many of these theories, it's not directly connected to age, even though there's a correlation, you know, there are these stages of development that, you, you may not even reach, not everybody reaches these stages, but there's perhaps an imperative in these times, you know, as times become more complex, or perhaps we just wake up to the complexity that we already, we always it's lived not, in. It's not sufficient to wake up, I'm afraid, um, uh, you know, because in some ways you could argue it's unethical for a coach to wake somebody up to the problems of the world and then do nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because once you've woken up, you've got to grow up. Because if you wake a six-year-old up to the truth, and any parent will know this, if you, you know, uh, give the full bore truth to a six-year-old about how terrible some aspects of the world are, you know, you'll scare the bejesus out of them. And that's happening, yeah? Like, there's, it's become a recognized, uh, like, diagnostic, young children becoming depressed because of climate change knowledge. Yeah, no, Exactly. Exactly. So it's beholden on on the guides, the coaches, the mentors, the people who commit their lives to helping others progress. It's beholden on them to realize it's not enough to wake people up. You have to do more than that. There's a moral imperative to help them do something. So when I was uh, working as a physician, which I did for 12 years on the wards, I mean, the equivalent moral equivalent would be telling the patient they have cancer, and then saying there's no treatment. So it's borderline unethical to raise awareness if you then don't do something with that awareness. And how do you do that? Like, you know, like, what do you do to help people 
grow up in this way you know when well, you, you have like, to have a developmental frame and without a developmental frame there is no growing up um yeah. so you have to have a playbook of how do i take somebody from level four to level five level five to level six level six to level seven yeah. you have to not only have an understanding of what are these levels uh, but how to get there how to unlock it and that's where most of the fun is uh, or the work is uh, for the coaching industry is not again it's not enough to develop what Suzanne would call aboutism. You know, she, she talks very beautifully, uh, you know, uh, I know about emotional intelligence, but I've got none. Um, you know, people have got aboutism, which means to use Kirk Fisher, who's another developmental theorist, uh, you can intellectually comprehend a phenomena well before you're able to really embody the phenomena. Mm. You can intellectually comprehend a level of development beyond where you operate from before you can actually live from that level. Um, so it's not enough for the coaches uh, and the coaching industry to intellectually comprehend these things. They actually have to be able to embody, embody them. So it's beholden, I believe, uh, on coaches, not only to understand uh, the, the theory of vertical development uh, and understand you know, what all these different levels are and understand you know, what the playbook is, but to actually themselves be living embodiment of more sophisticated levels. So there's work for the coaches to do on themselves. Yeah. So uh, w which is the theory that you find yourself um, leaning into most of your, when you're in conversation with leaders? Uh, is, there, is there one in particular? And, and do you notice, for example, within that, that whichever model or map you're using, that there is, a, there is a transition that a lot of leaders are making in the world right now? Um, well, a bit like Ken, you know, who's my own personal mentor, Ken and I are pretty close. Um, uh, yeah, Ken, Ken, I love Ken's work because he's kind of got a model of all the models. I mean, it's fully integrated. So, you know, he can um, balance, you know, the brilliance of Susan Cook-Greuter with Kurt Fisher uh, with Bob Keegan, and you can see how they all relate to each other because uh, the joy of working with uh, CEOs and C-suites is they're beautifully complicated. Um, and so you've got to have everything available. Uh, so you've got to uh, bu buckle up, strap in, turn everything on and access everything to give you even half a chance to better help these individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't stick, we're pretty uh, integrative ourselves. We don't stick to one church uh, we're sort of pragmatic. Um, so uh, as Ken would describe, there are many lines of development and working with any one individual e leader, we might start, for example, uh, on the emotional and social intelligence line. We might start on the values line. We might start on the ego maturity line. We might even start on the physical line. And by, by physical, I don't mean, you know, how big is my bicep? I mean, what is the amount of energy I've got available to do the job? And what is the quality of that energy? So one of the unique things we do in our business is we'll actually measure a leader's biology for 24 hours before we start coaching them. Uh, and we've developed a technology uh, that can pinpoint some incredible things that are going on with leaders uh, just by watching their something called heart rate variability, just their, their heartbeat in a normal working day. Uh, and with some clever maths, we can kind of pretty much pinpoint the way that they're leading and at what level of sophistication they're leading just by looking at their biology and never asking a single question. So, you know, that's fascinating to me. And uh, I know that, you know, that your book Coherence was about this, you know, heart, a lot of on there was about heart rate variability. Um, so how can you do that? Like, let's, let's unpack this further. So how, 
what's going yeah, so, on there? So, um, the easiest way to get into it is say, imagine as most people have done is stood looking at the ocean. And if you're stood on a cliff top looking at the ocean, you'll notice several things happening simultaneously. You know, you'll, you might see a little bit of froth on the surface of the water, and that's down to the wind. And then you'll also notice, you know, that every sort of seven to ten seconds, a wave hits the beach. And then in addition to that, you'll see a swell. And then over 24 hours, you'll see a tide. And so all of those phenomena, the froth, the swell, the waves and the tide, are all happening simultaneously. They're basically waveforms, complex waveforms, all occurring at the same time. Now, when you look at somebody's heart rate variability, it's the same thing. Uh, is with clever mathematics called fast Fourier transformation, you can look at somebody's heart rate fluctuations over a, a working day and extract how windy was it? You know, how much of a swell was there? How strong was the tide? And those reflect certain biological uh, uh, things going on, certain biological patterns. So, for example, you might, in the metaphor, the tide would be the fluctuation in hormonal patterns through a 24-hour period. Uh, the froth on the surface of the water would be the fluctuations in adrenaline levels over a 24-hour period. So with some clever mathematics, you can deconstruct the complexity uh, of somebody's heart rate over a 24-hour period and pinpoint exactly what's going on. Um, so I'll give you a fun example just to try and bring this alive to the people listening. Uh, uh, was coaching uh, the CEO of a credit card company um, a, a couple of years ago, um, and she'd called us in to, to help with her leadership and her leadership team. Uh, and I had a very fun conversation with her. I said, look, just before we start the coaching, uh, I'm just curious, how is your history A-level going? And, and she was literally dumbstruck. Like, well, Alan, you know, um, how do you know I'm doing a history A-level? I said, yes, but you are, aren't you? And she said, well, actually I am, but how do you know that? Have you been talking to somebody? I said, no, no, I can see it in your biology. And so that completely confounded her. And she, she just being a curious person, she just couldn't let that go. And I, she said, well, where can you see it? You can't possibly see a history A level in my biology. That's not even possible. I said, no, no, one of the things we can extract from your biology uh, are the fluctuations in adrenaline levels over a 24-hour period. And, and frankly, your adrenaline should be high when you're at work and charging around. It should be lower in the evening when you've got your feet up with a glass of wine. But when you're asleep in bed, it should be very low. But you're a woman, um, uh, in the first two hours of your sleep, we've seen from your biology, there's this enormous adrenaline surge. In fact, your adrenaline is so high in those first two hours of sleep, it's higher than your daytime value. It's as though your head touches the pillow and you start burning fuel, higher than your daytime value. And that's a, a pattern we've seen in people who are what we call retrospective. So you have this retrospective pattern, and you're a woman of 52, a very bright woman of 52, um, uh, with no children. Now, if you have no children, you'll probably have a little bit of time on your hands to do stuff. Um, and you're a very bright woman with time on your hands, so you'll probably be doing an exam of some sort. And given this retrospective pattern, it's going to be a history exam. It's simple deduction. Mm. So she was literally confounded by oh, I mean, so am I right now, you know, as you described this to me, the, the level of the extrapolation you're able to do from this data, that is pretty remarkable. And, and, and it is, but it's just pattern recognition, essentially, Joel, is we've seen so much of these uh, behavioral and biological patterns is we can see what's really going on. So I said, look, you've asked us to come and help with your leadership. And the problem with your leadership is you're leading by looking backwards. You're retrospective. So you keep articulating to your team 
where the business was a year ago, what you want to move away from, but you're not clearly articulating well enough where you want to move to. It's like you're driving the car by looking in the mirror, not looking through the windscreen. Now, we helped her to articulate the future better. And very interestingly, we coached her out of that excessive look back stance and started to help her to look forward more clearly and narrate the, the future more clearly. When we measured her biology six months later, the retrospective pattern in those first two hours of sleep had disappeared. So we could biologically prove to her that we'd fixed the problem. Right. So there's so many things I could ask you now. Um, I guess what I'm curious about is, as you monitor people, uh, is there like a universal, ideal kind of patterning that you could optimize people towards? Or is it also, is it all very individual, unique? Of course it's going to be, but you know, is it like one person you would say, you know, you want to be developing in this way um, and, and another person you want to be developing that way? Or is there kind of a rounded kind of... Well, if you look across, we have the view that there are probably, um, of course, as Ken will tell you, there are hundreds and hundreds of lines of development. I and mean, we can all as human beings develop in many different ways. Um, so, for example, we could cultivate the culinary line of development. Um, but frankly, um, if, if you're not running a restaurant, that doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, I can't even boil an egg, really. So m mine's almost a zero on the culinary line. Um, so uh, in business, we think there are eight lines of development that really matter in pretty much most businesses. You know, physical, uh, cognitive, Emotional and social intelligence, values and ego are the five lines you can't see. They're what we call the interior lines. All of that has to translate into behavior. Uh, um, you know, so behavior is a sort of final common pathway to moving the dial. Um, but you also have to be connected because you, you might be, you know, metaphorically the Dalai Lama on the inside uh, and it manifests in your behavior, but you live in a cave. So you, networks externally, and then it's the impact in those networks. So there are the eight lines. And again, we've uh, written about this in the Coherence book or the 4D Leadership book. There are eight lines that matter. And so in some leaders, we'll start on different lines. But as a general rule, uh, you know, the more altitude, the more sophisticated, the more developed you are across all of these eight lines, the more capability and capacity you have to drive organizational transformation. In fact, Bill Talbot, Talbot, another one of the developmental theorists, wrote a beautiful article in the Harvard Business Review uh, uh, presenting some data to show CEOs' ability to transform their organization was predicted by their altitude, their sophistication, their vertical development across the key lines of development. Mm -hmm. So we will look at people's uh, you know, altitude across these lines and it helps us to zoom in. So the journey is different for each individual, but there's a general principle that the more sophisticated you are, the greater levels of complexity you can handle and the greater your capacity to drive transformation of your organization. And have you noticed um, you know, correlates between how developed people are in these, these lines of development that are you know, best suited for business and their heart rate variability and their, uh, you know, kind of physiological kind of state and, and the readings you take from them. Is there, I'm very curious if, if you notice correlations between that. 
Um, again, a general principle is, you know, the, the greater the altitude, the more your ability to transform. But be, be aware that um, uh, these lines are independent variables. So you can be high in the cognitive line of sophistication, but low in emotional intelligence. So your classic sort of um, strategy analyst, you know, sophistication in cognition off the charts, but he can't hold down a relationship sort of boffin, but socially incompetent. Uh, so they're, they're independent or in the same way as, you know, you might say uh, there is another individual who's brilliant at relationships, but they're not the sharpest tool in the box. Mm. So these, you know, that would be high EQ, low kind of IQ, essentially. Um, although IQ is not really about cognitive development. Uh, but, um, you know, these lines are independent. So in the physical line of development, if, you're, if you've got tremendous altitude in your ego maturity, uh, and your cognition and your emotional intelligence, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have brilliant phys physiology. In fact, one of the challenges for highly sophisticated individuals living in the world, and particularly a world where all of their peers are less sophisticated, is it can be immensely frustrating, it can be very isolating, it can be very lonely. And uh, certainly coaches will notice this. The more sophisticated they become as a coach, uh, the danger of that, there's upsides and downsides to all things. The danger is, you, you know, that actually you become more isolated within your own community because you start to understand things that only a handful of people in the world understand. So the more developed you become, the more isolated you may become if you're not careful. It's what can cause more depth, uh, less spam. Mm -hmm. So the deeper you become, the fewer people around or even understand what you're talking about. So that can have a biological effect. That can erode your biology uh, unless you take that on. So as you, uh, again, part of what I'm exhorting the coaching industry to do is to develop themselves, is to move up their levels of sophistication. But with the caveat is be careful because, um, you know, you may develop yourself beyond where your client base is um, or too far beyond. Uh, now, as I said, you know, you need to be a bit further beyond where the client base is, else you can't help them vertically develop. But if you go too far beyond where they are, uh, either you lose interest in the task or they, your clients cease to even understand what you're talking about. Hmm. Just uh, let me see if I can get this across, because I imagine also like at certain altitudes of development and, and, and in a moment we can start looking at maybe maybe how neuroscience has informed your coaching or can inform the coaching industry in general. I know you've got some challenges around the way we uh, use certain concepts, but I'm curious, um, you know, at certain um, stages of development that, you know, there's a kind of mind body um, coherence or coalescence that starts to take place and that, you know, one might live more and more in the immediacy of the moment uh, and in doing so mediate their their state their emotional experience the the way that they're perhaps reifying or or kind of contracting around certain ideas and concepts in a way that i i would imagine might then begin to have a direct impact on their physiological state you know that, that so that they're actually become you know, quantitative, I don't know if you want to use that word, but like they, 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 there's a leap in the way that they're able to regulate their own performance, you know, and that performance is not just purely cognitive um, or values 
but it's, it's, it's a kind of integrated experience. Uh, yes. Um, well, certainly it, it's, it not only becomes possible, but it becomes an imperative um, because as you develop, uh, you can embrace more and more phenomena. And the upside is you're more perceptive, more insightful. You can understand complexity. You can drive transformation. The downside is you feel everything more. Um, you know, it's a kind of bit like you can literally sense the pain of the world. Right. Um, and, and therefore, it's imperative as you become more developed that you become much more skillful in emotional self-regulation in particular uh, because it can become increasingly painful. Uh, you know, you feel the suffering of humanity, essentially. Um, and so the capacity for regulation uh, increases, but the urgency of regulation also increases. So you, that's hence my point about as you develop as a coach or as the coaching industry itself develops, they have to get much better at embodying the very things that they teach. Yeah. And maybe we could zoom in on that mechanism, because I know we talked about when we touched base earlier this week about these three aspects of identity, you know, self-identity, consciousness and emotions, how they interact and, and can, you know, how that mechanism can lead us to become reactive or we can harness it in order to, to open yeah. and access optimum states. Yeah, so if you look at the uh, evolution of human consciousness, which is a topic that is of particular interest to me, uh, I mean, consciousness is basically an evolutionary trick. Um, uh, consciousness emerged in living beings because it conferred survival, survival advantage. Um, and so at its most basic form, consciousness is the ability to kind of hold in your attention a single phenomena for half a second. You know, it, it, it's called a qualia. You can fix something. So imagine... Um, at a certain level, the, the basic idea of uh, Penrose and Hameroff, uh, Stuart uh, Hameroff and Roger Penrose, Roger Penrose, mathematician at Oxford, Stuart Hameroff, professor of anesthesiology at Arizona State University, probably the most sophisticated model of human consciousness that most accurately describes the beauty of it. Um, so they have a, a sort of model that at a certain level of neural sophistication, consciousness emerges in living beings. So let's imagine an earthworm for a moment. Uh, that has a certain neural network that can fix in its awareness. Uh, I mean, you know, earthworms, you know, don't produce great art. Um, you know, they don't have self-awareness, but they can, you know, they may have an awareness of light, dark, or they may have an awareness of danger, non-danger. So they can fix in the sort of the, the, the earthworm's equivalent of their mind some phenomena. So consciousness emerged... Um, and, but consciousness uh, um, of self has not yet emerged at the lower levels. But um, so animals or uh, sentient beings have a certain level of consciousness. They're able to fix a certain degree of awareness. Now, uh, in human beings, that evolved over you know millennia, um, and our consciousness, human consciousness, uh, sort of emerged with the evolution of uh, emotion and with the evolution of identity. So think of it as a three-braided rope, intertwined. Um, so the listeners might be, um, you know, have some sense of this. If uh, they've ever been, uh, you know, had a bad day, and they go to their friends the following day and say, look, you know, I'm sorry about yesterday. I, you know, I really wasn't myself. Uh, that wasn't me. It was, 
you know, I, I was grumpy, I was irascible, and so on. So when their emotion is turbulent uh, and, you know, somewhat negative, uh, their sense of their self also shrinks. It sort of collapses. So when your emotion collapses into some sort of smaller negative, so does your sense of self. And so does your perceptual awareness, your consciousness, your, your ability to understand phenomena also collapses. You know, you can never think of the smart thing you wished you'd said in the middle of the argument. You're just not that perceptive when you're angry. Um, so the uh, consciousness and emotion and sense of self expand and contract together. So the reverse is also true, by the way. So when the expansive, loving, compassionate version of Joel shows up, you experience this expanded self. You're much more perceptive. You're much uh, uh, more able to generate ideas and be insightful across a greater number of phenomena. So your sense of self expands, your consciousness expands, and there's this sort of slightly blissful sense of well-being. So that's the expansion of emotion, self, and consciousness. And the first example was the collapse of emotion, self, and consciousness. So these three things are intertwined uh, in human beings. Um, and so, you know, as we move forward and lean into the difficult challenges in the world, uh, as a coaching community, we have to expand these three things together uh, because they do expand together. And the more we can self-regulate, the more possibility we have for consciousness expansion and the more possibility we have for expansion of self. And I don't mean expansion of self in a hubristic, narcissistic, solipsistic kind of way. You know, that's not an expansion of self because uh, rather paradoxically, as you expand your sense of self, you get to a certain level of evolution of self where the whole notion of self evaporates. Um, yeah. So um, it sounds like you're saying that this can happen on a moment by moment level, you know, like expansion, contraction. You have an argument, you contract, then, uh, you, you, you know, something changes, you open up and you expand and yep. then something new becomes possible. But it sounds like you're also saying that, that you know, that expansion is happening on, in a general trend, you know. If we develop and grow, we, we become, it becomes more and more available. Maybe it's a bit like the state stages idea, but I want to yeah. check. Yeah. So, so let me pick that. There's three phenomena, right? Number one, it does expand and contract moment by moment. Uh, you know, somebody presses my buttons, I get irritated, my motion goes negative, uh, the angry version of Alan turns up. I start snapping at people. Um, I'm not even, I've lost self-awareness. I don't even realize I'm chewing somebody out until a, an hour later where I have to go back and apologize. Uh, so that happens in the moment, right? Uh, so that's your first point. The second point you made is, is there a general evolutionary drift across mankind over the years to a greater expansion? And the answer to that question is yes, but not quick enough. Uh, but the real exciting thing is the third point, which is, can you turn it on? Can you actually, you know, deliberately, proactively expand and accelerate? And the answer to that is yes. And by the way, that's what the coaching community should be doing with so themselves, how? with their clients. So next question, how do we do that? How do you do that with your clients? Well, again, it starts with a, you know, realizing, you know, having a theoretical understanding, like, like with any phenomena, 
you know, I can't be a good accountant if I don't understand numbers. So you've got to start with aboutism, you know, Susan is not wrong, you know, all change starts with awareness, but awareness in and of itself, as we discussed, is insufficient, necessary, but insufficient. So you have to build out your understanding, your conceptual intellectual understanding to create a framework in which you can then cultivate some of the other things. Um, so uh, as we said, is um, even having an intellectual understanding that consciousness, identity and emotion are twined together is helpful. Uh, and, you know, a start point for many people is, you know, emotional self-regulation. Because sure as eggs is eggs, uh, if that emotion becomes toxic or it collapses, it will drag it, your identity and drag your consciousness with it. So of those three braids, a good place to start is to get emotional regulation to a whole new level. Now, most human beings, including coaches, um, uh, are not highly trained in emotional regulation, um, you know, because they've been focused on other things, frankly. Uh, we don't teach this at school. Um, so somebody presses your buttons, you know, uh, or the client starts to not really like, you know, whatever it is you're trying to explain to them. Uh, and then you start to panic as a coach. Oh, my God, this, this message is not landing. You know, I can't regulate my emotion. And maybe I haven't even noticed that my, I'm starting to feel a bit nervous about this narrative. Uh, and before you know where you are, your biology is scuppered, your frontal lobes are shut down, you've had a DIY lobotomy, and you're blurting out really pretty mediocre suggestions. So a good place to start is to get uh, unlock a whole new level of emotional regulation. So often, one of the places we start with many CEOs, uh, and also you know, when we coach or train new coaches, is to really step change their own ability to emotionally regulate. Uh, because if I can expand my emotional uh, repertoire, my emotional range, my emotional literacy, my emotional regulation, right out into you know, a, an advanced level of social intelligence, uh, then with it will drag my sense of identity and the expansion of my consciousness. So of those three braids, a good place to start is much more sophisticated emotional regulation. And so how would you do that? Of course, like it sounds like there's an aspect of, of emotional awareness, being able to differentiate between the different types of emotions that are arising. Yeah. But then it sounds like there's this kind of regulative kind of capacity. So can I allow emotions to arise and fall without becoming identified with them? You know, like, can I be with the experiential intensity of the moment without getting snagged, without getting caught? Is that... That, well, so so that, how do you do that? It's in that territory, right? Which is, um, you know, first of all, uh, when we've worked with a room full of people, and you can do an interesting experiment. So here's a little pragmatic, fun thing that coaches can do. Um, just get people to write down how many emotions they felt in the last week. If you give them five minutes and people make a list, you know, they, they certainly, they burn through five or six pretty quickly. Usually frustrated, annoyed, anxious, irritated, aggravated and then they suddenly go oh shoot you know they're all negative um i need a positive i need a positive um i felt okay last tuesday uh, and then they start to struggle and about having written six or seven down they then start to glance at their neighbor uh, and if they do that they observe the neighbor's got the same list that they do you know mainly negatives um and they panic but if you give them a good five minutes a room of 100 people will average about 12 emotions and then we point out to them there are 34,000. 
uh, it's possible to experience 34,000 different emotional states. So well done, everybody. You know, you've got an average of 12. Even the winner in the room's only got 16. Um, so our emotional literacy as human beings is immensely impoverished. So the journey, uh, I mean, if you look at the, uh, by the way, um, uh, all the instruments in the academic literature that measure emotional intelligence, they only measure three or four different dimensions of emotional intelligence. Even Daniel Goleman's latest instrument only measures six. We believe there are 12. There are 12 different dimensions. You've alluded to some of them. So you have to be, first of all, um, aware that you feel an emotion of some sort. You've got to notice the energy in your body, the energy in motion, the emotion. So once you become aware of it, that's, that's one of those levels. Uh, but the ability to correctly label it is a different level. So I might be aware, for example, I feel kind of yucky in some way. Yeah, but which of the 17,000 flavors of yucky is it really? Is it anger? Is it anxiety? Is it frustration? What is it exactly? So emotional awareness is one thing. Emotional literacy, the ability to label and accurately identify which emotion, is another thing. And then you've got the ability to change emotion. That's a different thing again, right? Uh, and so you need to measure all these things. You can't measure awareness in the same way as you measure literacy, in the same way as you measure emotional regulation. Um, so it's not enough to be able to notice these things arising Ultimately, what we've got to teach people is to get control of these things, to be able to regulate these emotions. So again, the coaches can do an experiment to say, okay, uh, tell me, what do you feel right now, Mr. Client? And the client will go, well, I don't know, I'm, I feel all right. Do you really feel all right? Maybe what you're actually feeling is okay. Maybe what you're actually feeling is not bad. Maybe what you're actually feeling is so-so. Do you even understand the difference between okay, all right, not bad, and so-so? To which the client will reply, what? What are you talking about? I don't even understand the question. I, they've got no literacy. This, this thing that they labeled as feeling okay had included all right, not bad, and so-so. And they put it all under a bundle of okay. I, they've got no discriminant power. Um, so imagine you teach them to develop discriminant power. And by the way, we've released an app called the Universe of Emotions, which people can have a look at if they're interested. Um, where there's 2,000 emotions loaded on the app to help people start to explore the universe of the emotions uh, within ourselves. Um, and so once you've developed a, a greater literacy, the game changer is the ability to move from one planet to another, one emotion to another. Because again, if you ask any human being, okay, let's assume that you're accurate and you're correct in your literacy, that you are on the planet of okay. I want you now to move to the planet of joy right now. Of course, most human beings can't do that because they don't know how to, right? Most human beings cannot deliberately move from one emotional state to another. Now, the good news is, uh, and rather ironically, we change emotional states all the time, but we don't do it deliberately. You know, our favorite piece of music comes on and we feel lifted. The smell of cut grass, you know, uh, smell is a very evocative sense because in neuroscience terms there's only one a neuron a neuron between the back of your nose and your emotional centers so the smell of cut grass or the smell of a scent or a perfume and immediately we're right back there with our first love um, so we change emotional states all the time but we haven't cultivated the, the ability to do it on purpose now that's incredibly important for business people mm. 
to change their emotional state. In fact, it's incredibly important for all human beings, quite frankly. Um, but human beings can't do that very easily because they simply haven't practiced that skill. So there are these 12 levels, if you like, of emotional and social intelligence that we need to cultivate. So in expanding our capability as a coach and in helping our leaders to expand, to grow up, if you will, uh, a good place to start is with that emotional regulation of ourselves and with our client base. So, you know, again, I'm hearing that there's a kind of almost like a meta competency of presence, you know, of being able to become aware of the emotion, but then uh, name it and, and, and be with it in a way often. This is something I do with my clients is be with it in a way that they can then begin to um, discern the, 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 the more specificity around it. You know, yes. if it's OK, what kind of OK is it and where is it in the body? You know, yes. and what happens as you stay with it? Yes. Are you resisting it or not? You know, are, is it okay for it to be there or is there a subtle resistance against it? So, you know, by staying with it, that meta competency of presence, yes. more and more information comes into awareness. And that seems to then kind of activate a kind of um, integrating effect whereby you know, the, the, their state will begin to change and most of the time into a, in, a, in a positive direction or in the direction. Well, here's the, here's the, so all of that is true, Joel. Here's the distinction I'd give you is um, the ability to objectify our own emotion is an unbelievably important skill. So again, if you look at 4D leadership, we talk about this in some, some detail. Um, uh, so most people have yet to cultivate that ability. You know, the anger's got them. They haven't got the anger. The anger's got them. They are the subject of that anger. That's why these feelings are subjective. I am the subject of it. It's got me. So the ability to objectify your emotion in the way that you describe, to look at it, where is it in my body and all of that, that's a technique we call mastery. That's terribly important, right? But then beyond that is I not only can objectify that, is can I step into it and can I step out of it? What we call the hokey-cokey, you know, in, out, in, out, right? So uh, it's not enough to just be able to objectify my anger. What I really need is the ability to move from anger to something more productive like determination. Can I change the emotion, not just observe it and hopefully it drifts in a positive direction? No, I want to deliberately move it into what, because the meeting starts in five minutes and I'm still angry. So I've got to morph the anger into determination. That's much more productive for me. Mm. So, and once you've got the hokey-cokey capability, right, there's something even beyond that, which is understanding the phenomena of my emotional state in relation to uh, all other emotional states. So can I systematize my comprehension? And so therefore, I can't only step in and step out of one emotional state, but I start to understand how all emotional states relate to each other and relate to my ability to deliver results. So there's sort of, you know, three moves, if you will. I move from subject to object, S2O we call that, subject to object, the ability to objectify my anger. I can then step into my anger or step out of my anger and step into a determination or step out of determination. That's the hokey-cokey move. Then the system move is, you know, can I understand all 34,000 emotions in relation to each other so it gives me complete navigational capability. Well, and also, is there a kind of meaning-making step, you know? So, for example, thinking, I'm angry, but I'm about to go into the meeting. Presumably, there's some kind of, 
you know, you, you mentioned emotions, identity, and consciousness. Sometimes, somehow my identity might mediate that emotion and say, okay, well, you know, like I see that I'm angry. I've disidentified. So, you know, it hasn't got the grip on me. Um, I've got this meeting coming in. I don't want to go in there and, and shout at everyone. What's, what's up for me right now? What's important here? And how, you know, how could I, how could I harness this experience or how could I shift in a way into something that would, that would um, take care of what was most important of me or move me towards, you know, my, my vision, my leadership vision. So presumably I'm saying, I guess I'm getting at like, what would be the next step? You know, is it a meaning making mediation or something or? Well, well in, in ego development, right. There are sort of 12 levels of ego maturity that have been uh, accurately identified in, in the vertical theory. Uh, and the first sort of four levels, and again, I detail this all in, in 4D leadership, the first four levels are really to do with emotional regulation because, as I've already described, uh, until you've got that down, there's, you know, it does constrain progress across many of the other lines. The second four levels are really to do with identity. Uh, and we can, Identity is such an interesting topic. We could probably unpack that in another podcast you know, because it is truly fascinating. Uh, so just a little uh, side thing. I, I was talking to, uh, you know, one of America's leading Zen masters uh, who told me a lovely thing just to, just to uh, share with your listeners is that when you've um, sat on the cushion for 40 years as I have uh, and uh, uh, reflected on the notion of self or identity or ego, you come to the inescapable conclusion that the self is just a collection of ideas held together by spit. Um, you know, so, so I, it's empty. It's an artificial construction. So there's a, there's a really interesting conversation to be had about the nature of identity, about that part of the thread. Uh, but that's probably for another day. Um, just so first, about that, just very quick. I mean, I'm about to talk to Shinzen Young and Rick Hansen about this very topic after this. Right. And I think it's, it's essential. You know, I think, it, it, you know, one of oh, yeah. the imperatives of these times is because actually you said, like, you realize your identity is not... A co- that collection of thoughts and ideas. No, no, no. no. That's so negative, but but you realize it's something else, you know. Well, it, well, what you realize is it's an artificial construction. Yeah. So, 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 for example, if I was your parent, uh, uh, Joel, and I said to you uh, uh, when you were five, six, seven, eight years old, oh, no, Joel, no, no, don't, no, give me that cup of tea. No, you're going to drop it. You're clumsy. You're clumsy. You're clumsy. You're clumsy. You're clumsy. And I kept narrating your clumsiness to you all through your childhood eventually you start to believe that you're a clumsy individual uh, for no reason that your parents kept telling you that. You know, and you see this in American children, great job, great job, and a sort of inflation of the ego. And I always marvel about how wonderful Americans are, you know, at the drop of a, you know, a, a hat, can look straight down the barrel of the camera, cry from either eye and narrate a wonderful, you know, and, and of course the Brits can't do any of that. We're so inhibited. Um, is, you know, we can barely sort of get a word out when the camera puts the the lens on us. Um, And partly because we're socialized in different ways and we start to believe different things about us just based on the happenstance of our birth and where where in the world we were born, who our parents were and so on. So we create this identity. It's artificially constructed, largely initially by our parents, without our permission, by the way. I mean, I don't think your parents ever said to you, okay, Joel, you're going to be you know, a super confident, 
uh, go-getter, uh, you know, with these sorts of capabilities. And can you just sign here uh, to this agreement that that's who you're going to become and that's who you're going to believe you are? Now, that never happened, right? It just evolved because of who your parents were and who was around you when you were growing up. So we start to believe things about ourselves. It's a construction and it becomes as a bit of a shock, you know, as, uh, as, as Gempo uh, was saying, that when you spend 40 years on the cushion to realize it's completely constructed. Uh, it's not really based on substance. It's based on a load of experiences. And rather ironically, once you start to believe something about yourself uh, and you're absent your parents now, you've left home, you start to source experiences which reinforce that artificial construction until one day you wake up to the realization that it's all artificial. There's no substance to it, right? You've just come to believe certain things to be true about yourself, mm. right? So the really interesting conversation is, is once you've woken up to that, you start to deconstruct that. Well, who am I really then? Uh, you know, if I am able, and by the way, it's a massive piece of work for most people to do the work on themselves, to jettison those bits that were, those bits of code that were embedded in their brain by their parents about their clumsiness, which turn out not to be true, to rewrite that code through neuroplasticity, that's a massive piece of work right there. Uh, but to even go beyond that is, well, hang on. Well, who am I if I'm not my thoughts, if I'm not my feelings? Who is this self, right? That's another whole question, a very interesting question, but probably the subject of a separate podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and because uh, I can feel my love for that question too. It's a big inquiry of mine, you know, because there's the negativa aspect. What am I not really? But then, you know, there's also, well, what am I? You know, actually, if I, fund, if I look on a fundamental level, but like maybe I, I there's a couple well, of things. There are, sorry to interrupt, there, there, are, there are some descriptions of, of this. Again, in the Coherence book, we, we, we give you a ladder of 10 things, the evolution of identity. Right? There's some basic meta-tenets, if you will, that help people understand how I've even come to believe who I am right now. And once I've done the work on that, where's the next level? And then where's the level beyond that? And then what happens after that? And then what happens after that and that? Mm. So I, I've, I've described some of these in the book, right? So, uh, but again, it is a, a very interesting, probably one of the most fascinating explorations any human being can undertake is the comprehension of identity and we are so absorbed with it uh, particularly in the narcissistic uh, environment in which we now find ourselves so so let's let's tantalizingly leave that fascinating exploration for our next conversation um uh i think i cut you off a bit so i want to check if you remember where you were going to go if not don't worry because i i want to ask you well, something else but well, well just to, just to touch on the neuroscience of this right because this does lead into a bit of neuroscience and tech which is where I wanted to go. So we've got that symbiosis going on now. So yeah. yeah. Um, so um, in terms of, you know, being, being a neuroscientist myself, you know, fascinated with human consciousness, uh, um, my, my medical professional colleagues, um, uh, you know, um, like many scientists, have become a little bit obsessed by anatomy uh, rather than function. And so the neuroscience community is, is slightly uh, over-indexing on uh, you know fMRIs and cerebral blood flow studies and you know there's this sort of narrative you know oh this bit of the brain lights up uh, and therefore that means x y and z or oh we're seeing alpha in this you know electrode on the scalp in the EEG and therefore that means 
Uh, I mean, that's the equivalent of uh, watching somebody's house and seeing the light go on in the toilet and presuming somebody's taking a bath. They not, may not be, right? Mm -hmm. But the neuroscience community is a little bit um, sort of fascinated with structure rather than function. I'm, I'm much more interested in the sort of function. You know, how does the mind really work? What are the flows going on uh, and the construction of identity from those flows and so on? That's much more fascinating. So uh, we've got to get away from a structuralist approach to neuroscience because it's shedding out many, many myths. For example, the mythology of the triune or reptilian brain, the mythology of left brain, right brain, you know, the mythology, um, uh, you know, of monkey mind, the mythology of, you know, there's lots of these mythologies driven by a structuralist approach. Well, are you saying that those are not, I mean, those are, those are terms I'm familiar with, probably a lot of listeners. Are you saying that they're, they're myths, complete myths, or are you saying there's some truth to them? Or? Um, of course, they wouldn't sustain if there wasn't an element of truth, like any good sort of mythology. You know, there's a grain of truth, but they've been extrapolated to such a degree that they've become, you know, they've taken on their own life. For example, if we take left brain and right brain, left brain, right brain research came out in the 50s. Um, uh, Springer's written a very good book about this. Uh, it was basically to deal with people with advanced epilepsy as they cut the corpus callosum, which is the, the, the thing between the two hemispheres of the brain, um, to stop epileptic uh, uh, triggers on the, in the right cortex manifesting in the left cortex and causing fits and so on. So they cut, they did this, sort of, you know, there was no real morality or ethics in those days. They just cut their brain uh, to try and help them. Uh, Well-intentioned, but borderline ethical. Uh, and then they started to discover these patients is you could flash, for example, uh, a, a picture of a nude person to the right hemisphere uh, and the person would blush, but they couldn't tell you why they blushed because the information didn't get across to the linguistic side of their brain on the left side, so they couldn't articulate. So they were embarrassed, but didn't know why they were embarrassed. So this kicked off all the research about, hang on, the, different, the hemispheres are doing something different. Uh, and it's certainly true to say that there is a lateralization. There is lateralization of function. So in most left-hand, uh, sorry, most right-handed people, language does exist in the left hemisphere predominantly. So if you have a stroke in your left hemisphere, you lose language. If you have a stroke in your right hemisphere, you don't tend to lose language. Um, so things are lateralized, but the, the narrative that's sort of become pervasive now is the left hemisphere is logical and the right hemisphere is artistic. Now that's wildly inaccurate. I mean, literally, you know, almost irrelevant. But, you know, oh, you're a left hemisphere person. Like there's a narrative that it's kind of taken on a life of its own, as many of these mythologies have. So, of course, there's a grain of truth about the lateralization of brain function and, and how that differs in males and females. But it's been taken to such a degree now as to become uh, itself part of the problem, you know, and reinforcing the structuralism that neuroscience is rather addicted to at the moment. And we've got to get away from this structuralist approach to a more sort of integrative, fluid, dynamic uh, approach to consciousness, not based on the bricks and mortar of neuroarchitecture. All right, so what does that look like? You know, so you're saying you're advocating here a functional approach to neuroscience. So, so what does that look like and what does it tell us? So, so you know, if this left brain, left brain, right brain idea is being kind of misinterpreted, uh, you know, what, 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 what can we trust? You know, what do you, 
what do you know that works in neuroscience? What, what ideas are you know, applicable, especially in coaching? So let's, let's tie it to coaching too, but well, what's this the, functional approach like and how does it tie it to coaching? Well, it's, it's very helpful to start with some consistent, uh, validated phenomena. You know, so there's some basic rules of neuroscience, you know, the rule, the sort of the gravity rules, if you like, you know, the rules of physics within neuroscience, you know, things like structure follows function. So all human beings, when they're born, if you look at the neural map of, a, of an infant, a, a newborn baby, basically it's a building site. You know, uh, there's a sign over your uh, cortex, uh, which says to be decided, Right. So we're all born, there's very little neural connectivity uh, at the moment of your birth. And depending on your experience, your brain starts to wire based on the experiences you have. So the structure that eventually emerges follows the function, i.e. the experiences you have, particularly in the early years, right? So there's a basic principle in neuroscience, structure follows function. So you know, that's true, which is optimistic for the coaching industry, because if we help people to have different experiences, it will rewire, you know, this is neuroplasticity, ultimately. And there's, you know, the, the whole phenomenon of neuroplasticity holds out hope, you know, because maybe we can rewire, maybe we can reprogram. And of course, we can. It's much more fluid and dynamic. These things are not written in stone. But, you know, science and medicine, you know, my old stomping ground, you know, still largely struck, stuck in a mechanistic structural model. And by the way, DNA is not as hard, hardwired as people think it is. DNA, all of our DNA is constantly revised through our lifetime. You know, but the belief is it's written in stone in the same way as neural architecture written in stone. It's not. Structure follows function and there is a lot of neuroplasticity and you can reprogram and rewire. So that's an optimistic stance for the coaching profession. Like if you get your developmental coaching right, you can literally transform the mind of your subject in a positive way through giving them different types of experiences which will rewire their brain and that rewiring will drive their future. So I'm curious uh, for you how you see that rewiring taking place. And I don't mean literally, but I mean... Um, you know, do you, do you, uh, and I think you'll say both, but is it, of course it's happening during the coaching session. Um, and, and do you actually play with that effect, that rewiring effect in your coaching session? And I'm curious as well, if you create kind of practices outside of the sessions that also, um, you know, cause I know you, you, you work with people like the great British Olympic team, you know, and where that's a lot of, about, how can I yes. directly impact my performance? I'm curious, how do you get people rewiring their brains? You know? Well, first of all, um, you know, there, there's sort of 12 steps to changing anything, right? So the, the subject of my next book uh, is about the 12 steps, four phases of change. So it's called step change. Like, how do you step change stuff? So uh, there is no change until awareness arises. Um, so if I'm in my comfort zone, I'm thinking I'm doing great, you know, insularity and arrogance, uh, I don't need your help thanks very much, I've got it covered. There is no change. So when I helped the GB rowing squad in uh, 2012, coming up to the London Olympics, and I was a rower, uh, so, you know, this is the best gig in town for me, you know, home Olympics, your own sport, oh my God, the GB squad want to talk to me. 
So I went along um, uh, to Caversham, which was where they're based, uh, just outside Reading. And I said, look, home Olympics, I love rowing. Rowing's my sport. You guys are rowing in the Olympics in three months from now. If I'm not with a client, you've got me for free. That was my offer to them. And there's 15 crews, 15 coaches. I said, who wants some? So seven put their hand up, said, yeah, we'll have some of that. Eight went, nah, Alan, we're all right. We've got it covered. Of the seven that put their hand up, six of them meddled. Of the eight that didn't put their hand up, only three of them meddled. Now, I'm not saying that was down to me. It's probably more related to the brilliant people who are open for business uh, and insularity is a predictor of failure. If you're not open for business, the chances are you're going to fail anyway. So I'm not claiming the victory in any particular way. Hopefully I did help. But one of the things we worked with them on is actually to try and re rewire their brain in those last three months. So um, if I give you a live example, when you're uh, in the Olympic final uh, as a rower and you're on what's called the state boat, you're right at the start before the guy goes, go, and you take your first stroke. Most rowers are sitting there looking across left and right. There's six crews rowing down the track going, oh my goodness, this is the final. I'm a bit worried and panicky. Um, so we taught them not to do that, not to rehearse anxiety or nervousness, to rehearse a different phenomena. So uh, we taught them, you know, and each crew slightly differently. We basically gave them uh, a sort of a plan for the entire 2000 meter race, because all the races are 2000 meters, of what emotions to trigger at what point. And we practice in the three months leading up to the Olympic finals, uh, how to do that. Uh, and to practice and practice and practice till it rewired their brain. So come the Olympic final, they just switched it on. Um, and so, you know, the seven crews we worked with, um, and, and uh, in fact, next weekend, I'm going up to see um, the Chinese rowing squad up in Nottingham, who are now based in Nottingham, um, because uh, we're going to go and try and help them because the GB rowing squad uh, are going through a period of change. And uh, Steve Redgrave, our greatest ever oarsman, is now working for the Chinese rowing squad. Paul Thompson, uh, probably the sec second best rowing coach in the UK, also working for the Chinese squad. So rather unfortunately, GB rowing has let some of its best talent go to the Chinese. Uh, and I'm afraid <laughs> they've approached me as well. So I'm going to go and help the Chinese as well. Um, but teaching these things about rewiring the mind, rewiring your, your, your neurons, if you will, to drive a different outcome. So it's entirely possible to do that, whether it's with an executive, uh, through rehearsal, through practice, not just in practice when they're sat opposite uh, any one of me or my team, but practice offline, uh, you know, at home on the couch. You can rewire. You can leverage this neuroplasticity and start to build a different future through the neuroplasticity if you know how to. Uh, and so that's some of the stuff that we taught them and we teach our, our current client base. And so, you know, just pre coming back to the idea of, of emotional regulation as well, um, you know, just zooming right in. So, how, you, you know, I'm just curious how you would do that. Would you identify, like, for example, we want to we um, cultivate an emotional state of equanimity or, or like subtle joy you know, or, or whatever, like determination, 
um, with focus. And then, you know, once you've clarified what that is, you learn to feel it in the body and in, you know, in your state, and then you kind yes. of sink into it. And, and so-, yeah, so, so, so if you remember, there was um, um, Helen and Heather, who were our, uh, a female pair. Um, uh, so Helen Glover, who, who, who's married now to uh, Steve uh, uh, Backshaw, Back, um, anyway, Helen Glover, who was married to, who's now married to Steve, uh, who's a, uh, you know, the TV adventurer, um, she'd never lost a race. Uh, and so I did quite a bit of work with them and their coach. Uh, um, and at a thousand meters or just before a thousand meters, I mean, we taught them a number of things, but one of the things we taught them was at a thousand meters to switch on excitement, right? I, half the pain was over because they're operating at a level of intensity. As if you speak to any of these Olympic uh, rowers, it is incredibly painful. The lactate levels that build up quickly in your muscles. So you've got to face in and lean into that pain. And it is unbelievably painful, right, to try and win a medal because they're all at a level of intensity. So at 1,000 meters, we taught them how to switch on excitement. Like the pain's, you know, halfway over, right? And, and what you'll see in all their racing is they would take a length at 1,000 meters, because as they turned on this state of excitement, uh, so you don't want to teach a rower equanimity. They'll go backwards. You know, you don't want equanimity in the middle of your Olympic final. You know, you don't want joy. So choosing the right emotion for the right moment in the race and, you know, choosing that emotion for the right crew and the psychology of that crew uh, and the, the, the event, you know, rowing in pairs is different from rowing in an eight, for example. So that's part of the skillfulness is which emotion, which crew, which moment, and so on. But for Helen and Heather, turning on the excitement, and suddenly there was an energy surge. And that energy surge translated to their effort in the water, and they took a length. So if you watch their races, you know, it was nip and tuck, nip and tuck. About 1,000 meters, suddenly there was a surge. And it's because they unlocked uh, a kind of reserve tank of energy through this excitement, embodying the excitement uh, and over 20, 30 strokes, it gave them a length advantage, which they then held onto or built, and then they won the medal. So it's things like that, is how do you teach people to access different emotional states, even under the most intense pressure? So, so presumably with them, yeah, it was like, learn to feel that excitement. Yeah, yeah. learn to switch it on. So do yeah. they, to switch it on, do they just recall excitement? They, they go, here we go. Here it is, switch it no, on. No, they, they, they subject to object, right? So normally excitement is something that's got you, like anger, and it's your subject to it. It's a subjective feeling. So the maneuver is subject to object. So you start to objectify, like where in my body do I feel that excitement? What's the size of that excitement? What's the color? What's the sound? What's the temperature? You know, how does it move up the body, down the body, in the body, out, off the body? You know, um, you know, does it bring a smile to my face? Does it make me grip harder? You know, whatever. So you're basically objectifying all the features. There's no right and wrong answers. So how you experience excitement will be different than how I experience. So we taught them to literally write that down, you know, look at it and then reinstall it. Right. right? And then look at it again and then reinstall it over and over and over again until they could reinstall it while they were rowing, until they could turn it on while they were rowing and just switch emotional states as they went down the 2000 meter track. Um, so, you know, and each crew, we taught them different stuff. Um, so there was, you know, one, the, um, uh, the lightweight double skull, we taught them, uh, t 
to uh, what we were calling put your hand in the flame, right? So at about 500 meters, when it looks like everybody's going to dead heat, this is 500 meters off the start, we've got another 1500 to go. Uh, everybody, that's where the pain starts to kick in for the first time. I'd say like, okay, enjoy the pain coming in and take pleasure in the fact that you're holding your hand in the flame of that pain longer than anybody else. It's like a competitive thing. Like, imagine you were sort of sat around, how long could you hold your hand over the candle before you withdrew it because it was hurting you, kind of thing, is actually get a perverse pleasure in holding your hand in the flame, right? Uh, and so tapping into your competitiveness, what's that emotion? It, you know, it's a sort of pain-pleasure sort of interface. You know, that's what you want to hold. Just for 10 strokes, hold it longer. And, and what you saw on that crew, at about 500 meters, you know, they got half a length because they held their hand in the flame, metaphorically speaking, for a bit longer than everybody else. They held the intensity for a bit longer than everybody else, gave them half a length lead. And then we did other things at other moments of the race. So stuff like that, you know, you objectify the emotion until you get really good at turning it on. You reinstall it, you objectify it, you reinstall it, you objectify it, you reinstall it, until you can just turn it on at the moment's notice, even in the Olympic final. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, and I can see how that directly you could tra translate to a CEO, an executive, a leader, identify what is that quality and then go through the same process. So we talked about a lot of things today. And as we kind of move towards the, the end of our conversation, you know, I want to kind of like, let's kind of zoom in on some things that coaches listening could, could do next or could apply in their coaching from all the things that we've been talking about. And, you know, of course, in a way that we have been doing that, you know, we've zoomed in on quite a, uh, you know, a granular level on uh, to some of the ways that you help people install emotional states, for example. But um, I guess, let me volley it back to you here and say like, you know, what would you advise coaches to, to do to, um, both on a kind of macro level to grow themselves, you know, it might be advice to check this out or that out, but also on a micro level, like they might do in their coaching sessions, you know, try doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, as we said earlier on, um, uh, first and foremost is starting to get coaches to move away from descriptive diagnostics into developmental diagnostics. So like, what do we measure to track, to, to, to help us track progress? Mm. Stop measuring typologies and personality and start measuring developmental levels, uh, point one. Point two, actually start to get much more fascinated by your own developmental level and see if you can't up your own game and evolve your own uh, developmental level. Uh, that's based on actually getting into the developmental theory. You've got to have an intellectual understanding of the developmental theory, uh, but don't get stuck on aboutism. You know, don't just have an intellectual understanding. Start to be, live the practice. So in, uh, in our business, um, we don't even call ourselves coaches. We call ourselves practitioners because it's about practice. We're all in practice. We're all works in progress. We're all practicing. We're practitioners, not coaches. It's practice. So uh, we've all got to continually practice uh, and cultivate our practice so we become more mature, more sophisticated all the time. So having aboutism, having theoretical comprehension of all these phenomena, not enough. So if they start measuring properly, uh, if they start um, 
uh, understanding developmental theory properly if they start actually practicing on themselves, upping their own game, then their ability to impact their clients starts to transform. Um, and, you know, so, um, and also taking the clients on the journey that they themselves are going. It's an altitude journey, it's an ascent. Uh, and you can ascend up the, uh, any of these key eight lines of development, but you know, ultimately all of them, and through that ascent, yourself as a coach, but your client, then we have a chance uh, for humanity because you know we wake up, we grow up, uh, and we show up, show up in a different way, in a different way that may move the dial because the clock's ticking and we've only got 30 years to make the right decisions. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, well, um, where can we find out more about your work as well, Alan? Um, you can email us. So uh, if you go and look for, uh, for our website, uh, uh, complete, completecoherence.com, or look me up on Amazon, you'll sign, find some of the uh, several books I've written. Uh, as you've mentioned, Coherence, uh, The Secret Science of Brilliant Leadership, or 4D Leadership. Uh, uh, so they're the leadership books, but I've written books about other things besides. But you know, from a coaching corporate client's perspective, those two books should be quite helpful. You know, we're very open and receptive. Uh, if people are interested, just reach out to us, start talking to us. We're always on the lookout for brilliant coaches to work with um, uh, because, as I said, the clock's ticking. And as a coaching community, um, developmental coaches have to start working better together uh, to move the dial uh, because, you know, things are urgent now and we've got to start, you know, um, uh, counterbalancing some of the, you know, regression that's going on in other parts uh, uh, of society. Um, and I think the coaching community is sat right on that challenge. Um, and, you know, I do believe we could, we, I don't, I'm not quite as depressed as Margaret is yet. Uh, you know, I still think we can turn it around. Uh, and I still, particularly if we start to work effectively together, share, understand, educate, develop ourselves and our client base, we're still in with a chance. Mm, yeah. Um, well, watch out because there's a few thousand coaches who listen to this. So you might be uh, hearing from some of them there. And, and I know a lot of them are steeped in developmental theory. So um, I just well, want to say... Uh, be delighted. We'd be delighted. Yeah. 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 A big thanks, Alan. Um, you know, it does, it does feel like we need a part two. There's so many, you know, particularly this conversation around identity, I think, is, is really important. But uh, I just appreciate it today, your passion, but also just this depth of knowledge you have across different kind of fields of expertise, you know, that, that, are, that is all woven into one. So a big thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Really delight talking to you, Joel. Hi, it's me again. You're not rid of me yet. Just wanted to take one minute to tell you about the Neuroscience of Change. It's coming up soon in September all about the neuroscience of effective coaching. And it's really going to be focusing on applied neuroscience. How do you apply it in your coaching? So if you want to stay in the loop about that launch, head to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience. And we'll keep you informed about the early bird when that opens up. So I just want to wish you well. See you again soon.